the desire to honor him, to praise him, to worship him. Oh, how I love Jesus. It is that area that you have to desire to serve him. And oftentimes in life it is the loss of the desire to serve him, but to make him a servant of our own. And sometimes we get caught in that area that we're making him the servant rather than us being the servants. And we need to recognize that he's the one that we're looking to. Shall we pray and let's just seek the Lord's face for a moment. Father, we want to thank you and praise you, O God, for keeping us. For you are the God who knows how, O God, to rescue the righteous out of an evil, wicked world. And Lord, we recognize, Lord, it's only by your hand that, Lord, that we are not caught up in some type of sin. That we are not living in the polluted world of sin. But that, Lord, we are a people who desire to walk on higher ground. And because of that, Lord, our thinking is different. Our lives are different. And oftentimes, O oh God, that will cause conflict with the dying world. But Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that there would be such a love for you, such an honor for you, that Lord, that we're willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Lord, equip us as your people in the days in which we are living to desire, O oh God, to live in a way that honors you. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a wicked world and sometimes we can't figure it out. Why are things so sinful? Why are things so wicked? Why are things not like we may expect them to be? Ushers, won't you just take a, a stroll through one of you? Anybody sitting on the other side, anybody else sitting somewhere else other than sanctuary that's not in that sound room, direct them towards the sanctuary. This is where they should be. Sin has boundaries. But oftentimes, we don't want to recognize the boundaries. God set those boundaries. No sin takes place without God's permission. No sin takes place without God's permission. If God would not allow the sin, he would automatically take the life. Understand that. If God would not allow the sin, he would automatically take the life. And oftentimes we get caught in that area. Wondering, why did I sin? Why did God allow me to sin? What's going on in this life of sin? And what we have to understand about sin is that sin is simply doing it our way rather than God's way. Sin is always related to that which is known. 
Sin is always related to that which is known or has been revealed. If God has not given knowledge of it, or if it is not revealed, you cannot sin. You cannot create something new. Put it this way. God ordained marriage. If God would not have ordained marriage, there would not have been marriage. But because God ordained marriage, we sin by living outside or having sex outside of marriage. That's what sin is. Taking something that God has created and made it known, but then going beyond what God has permitted. Going beyond what God has permitted. W.D. Smith says it in this way. When it is known, certainly, when it is known, it will be done. If it is known, we'll do it. If it's known, we'll do it. Unless something is set there that prevents it. Unless there's something there that will prevent it. And there is a determination not to prevent. And that's what we don't understand. That Satan is there to hinder the preventing of sin. Why? Because Satan wants us to sin. Satan desires us to sin. Why? Because it's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against God. Stay, kind of stay with me some. There is that determination not to prevent it. And Satan does not want to prevent us from sinning. He desires us to sin. It is rendered as certain as if it were decreed to be done by positive agencies. And that's a whole host of demonic world that's out here assisting us with our sin. We don't see it. We don't feel it. But it's there. If you don't believe it's there, go to any hospital to the psych ward. And the biggest problem on the psych ward is demonic influence or what the devil made me do. Biggest issue. Second thing, if you don't believe it, look at it from this perspective. Come get it. Put it in your purse. The second is to look at the psychological effects of sin, which we're going to do during this series. The psychological effects of sin of what God says, the sins of the parents are passed down to second, third, fourth generation. The effects of the sin in the lives of our children and our family. And today, look how many children are on medication. Look how many children are angry. I had five young men 
with me in the room, no older than eight years old. And I posed this question. What would your father think? He don't care. He's in prison. He's in jail. He's not around. All five, none of them had a father in their life. But what was very evident of that lack of a father in their life was the anger that was coming out. The psychological effect of sin. That oftentimes we don't see. We have little girls in the daycare that time they cry. I have two of them in my office. What, what's going on in your life? Why are you so angry? And the tears well up. I don't have a daddy. My father don't love me or care for me. The psychological effect starts very early. Very early. Then the behavior comes out. Because the child is trying to understand something that they cannot understand. And it weighs on the mind. The most reasonable explanation is that the sinful nature will go to the boundary set by the permission of God. God's boundaries of sin renders certain what and how much will come to pass. What is being said? The reasonable explanation of the sinful nature, that's us who have the sinful nature. We will go right to that line of sin and indulge in that sin. The problem is we can't go any further because that's as far as God will allow us to go. You can steal. The question is how much will you steal? But you can't do anything worse than stealing in the moment of stealing. You can steal, steal $10. You can steal $100. You can steal $1,000. It's still the same thing. You're stealing. Even if you only stole a penny. It's not yours. God set a boundary even to sin. That you can only go just so far even with sin. Period. But this is what is not known about sin to the person who sinned. What will be the real effects of that sin? How will that sin really affect your life? What damage will sin really do to you? What pain will sin really bring into your life? And how long will it last? And some, some sins last a lifetime. They're in here. They're in here. If I could take you into my room sometime when I'm counseling, because one of the things I do in marital counseling, I go back even to your first sexual affair. Because we want to ask God to forgive. Why? Because every time you will get ready to sleep with your husband, that affair and that sleep will come into your mind. Other men will run through your mind. Other women will run through your mind. Why? It's there. It's there. And what you don't want to do is mix up your present husband 
with somebody in the past or, the, or your present wife with somebody in the past. So we try to deal with the attitudes and the problems that come from all of that. What we cannot deal with or understand, God uses two words. One, he calls discipline. The other one is correction. God never describes his discipline to sin. He never says what it will be, per se. All he says is that he will discipline. Now, rather like David in the discipline with his sexual sin, he took the first child. Period. Even though David prayed, God took the first child. We don't know what effects of sin. Saul, because of his sin and rejection of David and his hatred toward David, caused him, in a sense, to take his own life. It even caused him to leave God and go to a witch, in a sense, to find out information about the future and trying to bring Saul back up. Because sin leads us away from God, but yet into an area we cannot control in our own. We can't say what the discipline will be or what the correction will be when dealing with sin. And what we don't understand is this here. You may sin in the early part of your life, but because of your sin, it brings damage to your children psychologically and painfully. It brings it. And it hurts. True or false? Here am I. I'm glad you took that front front seat again. (laughs) True or false? Did God create everything? Huh? Can't hear you. Did He create everything? No? Which one? Put that boy in Bible study. <laughs> you know how to run a football play, don't you? Yeah. Well, you guys know an end around for God. <laughs> he, made the clothes. he gave you some clothes? Well, no, yeah, make clothes. Make clothes. Make clothes. What that got to do with sin? I don't you don't know. Let me go to somebody else. Did God make everything? Yeah. He made everything. You sure he made everything? Yeah. Everything under the sun, God created. Yeah. So he created sin. Yes, yes he did. Amen. Yes, he did. God created everything. And in creating everything, he allowed sin. He could not give us free will 
and the ability to choose without also giving us the ability to say no to him. Therefore, to live for him is a moment-by-moment decision. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Therefore, if God created evil, Mick coming back to you. If God created evil, if God created sin, is God just for punishing us for sin? Yeah. Why? Free will. So in that free will that he gave us, how is he just in punishing us? Because he set an example for the way that we need to live. And if you don't live like that, then that's not his problem. You're partially in there, so I'm going to push a little bit more. He set the example, but what else did he do? What did he give you that allows him to judge you? He gave you life. But in life, what did he give you that allows him to judge you, that allows him to be called a just God? Pardon? Choices. Choices. Knowledge. Get you off the hook. Knowledge. Without knowledge, without knowing God's rules, or without God's rules being declared... God cannot be a just God by punishing us unless he teaches us what his rules and regulations are. If there were no rules, he would be an unjust God to punish us for something we had no knowledge of. Now, somebody might say, well, that's why I don't read the Bible. The Bible also says God winks at ignorance. He doesn't accept ignorance any longer. Why? Because he's given it to us. A professor in school can sit you in their classroom, write down the answers on the test. But on the day of the test, those answers aren't there. And you have to give them back the correct answer, but they've given you the knowledge but who has to accept it and receive it? We do. We do. A teacher cannot test you over what they have not taught you. They cannot grade you over knowledge that they have not taught you or shared with you. They cannot grade you over something that you have no information about, so they'll tell you, make sure you read chapter 3, chapter 7, or chapter 8, because the test is going to come out of those chapters. But who's responsible to go read now? Yes. And because of knowledge, God has the right to discipline, correct, and punish severely. And he does. 
And he does. Now, turn me to Isaiah 45, verse 7. 45, 7. Isaiah. The word simply says in Isaiah 45, 7, he says, I formed the light and created darkness. God gave them both. And one even says, darkness is light, it's just a lesser darkness. And he goes on, he says, I bring, now, now catch this, I bring prosperity. Prosperity doesn't come because you're educated. Prosperity doesn't come. And I will share with you. If you haven't seen the movie, and I don't recommend too many movies, boy, I love the movie The Butler. Because he was an uneducated man in one sense. Because when the president asked him, did you finish high school? Did you? No. But he was still educated. Education just doesn't come through our educational system. He is still educated. And because of that education, prosperity. Because of our knowledge of God comes prosperity. Not because of my degree at Akron U or Kent State or Howard University or Purdue or whatever. My success in life really comes through the knowledge of God and how I apply that in everyday living that causes me to be prosperous because he says he brings prosperity. He brings prosperity. And then look at what he says. And I create disaster. King James says I created evil. I created disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. In the King James, he uses the word evil. In IV, he uses the word disaster. In the New King James, he uses the word calamity. Disaster, evil, calamity. God says, I bring these things into your life. So when you're saying you are not being prospered, and you can't make it, and you can't do this, and this is not advertisement for prosperity living. No. This is the, about the one who brings prosperity. God. God. And the effects of sin that robs us from that prosperity. Our Congress is really struggling. And Congress is struggling over the issue of finances. Everybody in the United States know the welfare system of the United States has to go. We know that. It has to be restructured. Why? It's bankrupting the United States. More people on welfare time live better than seniors who have worked all their lives. And we're realizing something has to change. 
I don't believe it's so much Congress that's doing it as it is that God is doing it in order to deal with the sins of our country. And what Congress is dealing with is this. If we take it away, how many children will suffer? Think about it. Before 1958-1953, any children brought into this world through an unlawful marriage was the responsibility of the grandparents, not the government. If the grandparents didn't help feed, didn't help clothe, didn't help house, there would be no housing, no food, no money, nothing. And our government came in and said, we're going to do this, this, and this. Now it's bankrupting us. And something has to change. And I believe God is putting the pressure on us to get back to certain things that are right. Look at the word, first of all, disaster. Western Dictionary, if you go look at it, simply means any happening that causes great harm or damage. Any happening that causes great harm or damage. So God says, I'm going to bring harm into your life. I'm going to bring damage into your life. Boy, is this God at work? Yes, it is. Over this thing called sin. Second word, evil. Western Dictionary says, in the second part of the Definition of evil, he says, causing pain or trouble. Causing pain or trouble. You have some pain in life. You have some troubles in life. Pain and trouble are caused by sin. The, the pain of the heart. The pain of the mind. The troubles that you go through. The hardships that you go through are called by sin. Thirdly, calamity. Deep trouble and misery. Remember that old saying, misery loves what? Yeah. There's a lot of people out here who say, I can't make it, I'm not going to help you to make it. I won't let you make it. I won't let you get a step ahead of me. I won't let you be better than me. I won't allow that to happen. Misery loves company. And understand this. Satan is one miserable, miserable individual who wants all the company he can gather in hell with him. Need to understand that. It causes deep trouble and misery. And a great loss of sorrow. It will cause you to be sorrowful. The worst thing you can do in life is get to a certain age and look back and you cry and you weep and you're sorrowful over the things you've done back there because you understand the things you did back there are now hindering you where? And they're hurtful. They're hurtful. They're painful. And that hurt and pain is something that has lasted 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, all because we don't reconcile it. 
We guard. We don't deal with it. And he says, boy, great loss. What was the great loss? The great loss is the life that God intended you to have. The great loss is the joy that God intended you to have. The great loss is the husband or wife that God intended you to have. The great loss is where God would have desired you to live, but you chose to live here. The great loss is the position God wanted to put you in, but you settled for this down here. The great loss is the host of company and friends and families that would encourage you rather than over here in all the negativityness. What is sin? And I think one of the things that we don't understand today is really what is sin. All we hear and we say to our young kids, don't sin, don't sin. The definition of sin in the Greek is simply missing the mark. But you're missing the mark of what? Missing the mark of God's word. You're missing the mark. You're not doing what God has ordained for you to do. You're missing the mark. But we need to understand what is sin in a more deeper manner than just missing the mark. Western Dictionary, and, and, and catch how close they are to a biblical position, is the breaking of religious laws. If you take the word religious out of there, you got it right on him. But the dictionary put the word religious in there. Is the breaking of religious law or moral principles that you choose to break them? If you choose to break them, you bring the consequences into your own life. You bring them. Dr. Sovine, our pastoral pastor who we had our classes with, he had a certain rule for his class. And sometime we would get upset with Dr. Sovine quite often. When Dr. Sovine left Tacoma Falls College where I went to school and went over to Fort Wayne Bible, all of his students rebelled against him and even wrote to the dean. And they were looking at dismissing Dr. Sovine. Over 80% of his pastoral class was failing. And they were failing because of his rules. So he convened some of his past students. And he, Elaine and I went. And there was about 10 of us. And his question to us was this. Am I too rigid? Am I too hard? One of his rules was this. You could be present in his classroom, but you had to show your breath mint. You didn't have your breath mint, you were not there that day, you were absent. The reason he basically came up with that was simply this. He says somebody could be up there wanting to repent of their sin, and your foul breath will chase them away from the altar.
The other thing he came up with is this. If you were late in his class, I don't care if it was three seconds. Three times late, you could be a straight-A student in his class. And you flunked his class. If you were late three times. What he was instilling into future pastors was this. You're never late for this pulpit. The other thing he had in his rules was simply this. If you were absent three times in that semester without a doctor's excuse, I don't care if you was an A, B student or what your grade was, you flunked his course. Because he said when you step out into church life, you can't be absent from the pulpit. And he had these little what we used to call off-the-wall rules. But after we were out here for a while, all of us told Dr. Solvine, you're not tough enough because the church is worse than what you are. The church is more demanding than what you are. God is a demanding God. And he will not accept our excuses for failure of carrying out his word. He will not accept our excuses for the failure of carrying out his word. In 1 John 3, 4, he simply says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is that which disregards the rules. Sin is that which believe it, it can supersede the rule. Sin is that which thinks, boy, they can be lawbreakers and there's no consequences. So NIV simply says, the sin is lawlessness. And in King James, he says, whosoever committeth sin transgressed the law, and therefore sin is a transgression of the law. It is a person who defies what God says is right. And they're going to do it their way. In so doing that, what they do not understand is this. Though they believe they are doing their thing, what they really are doing is Satan's thing. And we're going to see that in a moment. Whenever you go against God's rule, you're not doing your thing. You're doing Satan's thing. And you have come to a point in your life where you disagree with God, and what you are doing now is agreeing with Satan. Whoever commits sin transgress also the law. For, for sin is the transgression of the law in the New King James Version. Now, just a couple more verses of, of defining sin. In James 4.17, he says, Anyone then who knows. Remember what we were talking about? Knowledge. You have to know. That's the thing about a child. You don't spank a child until the child knows you're what? 
right. Now, sometimes as Christians, we want to put Christians like we do with children. Terrible twos. What are terrible twos? Out of control. See? Well, we didn't have that in our home. Because the moment you were able to start touching, I was saying no. And if you didn't listen to my no, no. And you begin to understand. Or I would take it and I would pinch it. And I would pinch it until you let it go. Because the determination there was sometime not to do what? Let it go. But when the pain got bad enough, guess what you did? You know something about life? God allows you to stay in the sin until it gets painful enough. You will run away from it. He says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do, do and does it not, is sin. God says, you know it, but you choose not to do it. You know it, but you choose not to do it. It's sin. It's sin. In 1 John 5, 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin. All wrongdoing is sin. Everything that is against God's word is sin. But listen to what he says now, because this sometimes that jumps on us is, there's a sin that does not lead to death. doesn't say it doesn't lead to pain or trouble or hurt. It just don't lead to death. So we can go out here and sin and don't what? And don't die. Pain. King James says all unrighteousness is sin. Just all unrighteousness is sin. Now, the origin of sin. I want you to stay with me in the thought process of this. Sin did not begin with man. Sin did not begin with man. Sin didn't begin in the garden. Sin didn't begin in the garden. Go with me to Job. 38. And just follow with me for a little bit. 38 verses 4. Four through seven. And this is one of the answers to Job crying out and wanting to have his time with God and his audience with God. And God is, is speaking now to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Okay, Job, you're so smart. You're so intelligent. Where were you? 
When I created the earth, when I laid the boundaries of the earth, when I laid out the oceans, when I raised up the mountains, when I set forth the trees and so forth on earth, where were you? Where were you? He goes a little further. Who marked off its dimensions, and surely you know, who stretched measure line across it, or what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sung together, and all the angels shouted for joy. All the who? Angels did what? Now, stay with me here in thought, because this is the important part. The angels were with God while God was doing what? Yeah. When they saw him create the earth, they shouted for joy. So they're there when he's creating the earth. Now there's something that happens between that first day and that sixth day in Genesis when God said all that he created is good. Either the angels were with him before heaven was created or the angels were created right after heaven was created. Stay with me. Oftentimes in scripture, we run the two together. Heaven and earth. Turn to Exodus 31. Exodus 31. Verse 17. 31.17 It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he abstained from the work and rested. So and here we have that in the, in the six days, God created what? Heaven and what? Earth. One can either argue from the area of silence and arguments from the area of silence is this here. You conclude a bunch of verses, but at the same time, there's nothing truly stated about what you're stating in those verses. But those verses can assume what you are stating could be true. Or you follow exactly the verses themselves. Period. So either the angels are created and they see God creating heaven and earth and therefore if the angels are with God before heaven and earth, they're existing with him somewhere before heaven and earth was ever created. Now understand this point also. God is living somewhere before heaven's ever created. Boy, that's heavy, isn't it, up here? Because the only time that we think of God is that God's just in heaven. 
So heaven, as some would say, was created for the redeemed. Because God knowing all things, even before he created man, knew that he was going to have to redeem man. Because the fall was going to take place. And therefore he created a place called heaven for the redeemed. And then when you go into Matthew 25, 41, it says hell was created for the devil and his followers or his angels. It never mentions man. That hell was really created for man. Hell was created for the devil. And his demonic host or his fallen angels. Earth then is created for man before he goes to heaven to see which way he's going to go. Heaven or hell. Earth is that training ground. And prepares us for heaven or hell. Now, God speaks about, in Genesis, speaks about God. And the very first verse in Genesis 1, in the beginning was God. Time you get to verse 2, you have another person of the Godhead that is mentioned, the Spirit. So it's very clear in Genesis 1, God and the Spirit are present. We take another verse in Genesis, it talks about when he says, let us make man. We believe Jesus Christ is there too. But what really clears it up for us, go to St. John 1, And we know this much then. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, if that Word is Jesus Christ, referring of Jesus Christ, it makes it very clear that in the very beginning, Christ was there. So in the very beginning, we have to conclude, at least, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are there before heaven and earth are ever created. And if heaven is created, it has to be created for a purpose. And if hell is created, it's created for a purpose. God, in a sense, when he created heaven, already existed and was dwelling somewhere. So God didn't need a heaven. But to spend eternity with us, he creates a heaven. And for those who would not spend eternity with him, he creates a hell. Now, whether if the angels were with him before he created, stay with me, 
or there was a rebellion between the first day and the sixth day that took place in heaven. How do we know that? Because soon after creation, and we don't have time gaps here, before Adam was ever put out of the garden, who showed up? Satan. So we know either the angels were with him before he created heaven and earth, because Job says they gave out a shout. Now, did they give a shout out only for earth being created or heaven and earth? Job says the earth. Didn't say anything about heaven. He says the earth. So they could have been created when? Right after heaven was created. And then they saw God create the earth. And they shouted out for joy and praise over what they were seeing God create. And somewhere then between God's creation and God says all things are good that he created. Really means all the angels, all mankind, everything. And then after that point. There's a rebellion in heaven. Follow me? Stand stand with me in thought? Now, in Luke 10, go there with me. Luke 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus says this to his disciples. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. If Jesus says, I saw him, Jesus at that point is where at? In heaven. Had not taken on flesh yet. He's in heaven. Something else takes place here. If Satan is in the garden before Adam is expelled from it, this had to happen while Satan, somewhere between the first day and between the time Adam is expelled from the garden. that he saw Satan fall. And when Satan fell, a host of other angels fell with him. Satan heads up all this thing that we call sin. He is the one who sets the environment. He's the one who introduces us to sin. Back to God being just. God educated Adam, who was supposed to educate Eve. And you see that God never came on the scene until Adam himself took of whatever the fruit was. But what we do know is this here. Adam was taught by God 
that the day that you take of it, you will what? Surely die. But what we also know, he didn't die, but he was what? Expelled from that area. Boy, that was a vacation spot. Hey, you ask Liz and Vic, would they rather be here or back in Hawaii? <laughs> it was relaxing. Even though you got loved ones here, boy, for, for, for a moment you were just totally away from what? Everything. And, and Adam was away from all the sin in a sense, away from all the toil. Did, didn't know what sweating was even though he worked. But because of sin, when you work now, you do what? Because you'll make your living by the sweat of your... And Satan came on the scene and he told a lie. And he distorted what God has said. He's still doing that in our lives today. He distorts marriage. He distorts sex. He distorts happiness. He distorts. He distorts the family of what God intended what a family was to be. He distorts that. And remember what I said before? You can't sin unless you know what it is as something known. And then you do the opposite of what is right by it. You know it. Because, see, you can't create any sin. You can't create any unknown thing and do that. You can only do the opposite of what God said. Or you can do what God says, period. That's your boundaries. We're caught in that. Go to Ezekiel 28:17. Here's where sin begins. And it begins with this person called Satan. And you have to understand, Satan was the choir director in heaven. Satan was intelligent. And Satan was powerful. There's another angel in Revelation 9 also. Very powerful. Had to do some more research with them, but... If you understand, there was two powerful angels that fell and two powerful angels that did not fall. The two that did not fall was Michael and Gabriel. You understand that Michael is the one who is always attending Israel. Gabriel is the one who's always carrying messages to the saints of God and to the people of God. Adelon. He's a powerful angel. What shows us his power in Revelation 9 is that he is the ruler over the aspis of hell. The abyss of hell. In verse 17 and 28, this is the beginning and somewhat the real fault of all of us. Not just Satan. 
your heart became proud. And in our pride, we go off doing our own thing. When a young man stands up to his father and say to his father, I'm a man, what is he saying? Is he? No. I remember telling my son one time, Gus about 17, and Gus took the car, he was doing something, shouldn't have been doing, because when he pulled in the driveway, the police pulled in right there behind him. Then he's trying to blame the police that he did whatever he did. After the police led, left, I said, Gus, this is what your punishment is going to be. I'm a man. I said, well, shoot, we can change this whole thing right now. Because the best man is going to win this fight. Since you're a man, and I, and I think a man should always be respected as a man. Don't you? I'm not going to whoop you like a child. I'm going to beat you like a man. man. Hey. Never embarrass a man by trying to whoop a man like a child. Man. If it's going to be a man, beat it like a man. If it's going to be a grown woman, One day, my grown daughter, we had told her, don't wear stockings to school. Oh, Lord. Don't wear stockings to school. Wear them on Sunday. That's enough. We don't wear them to school. So somebody came out of their bedroom with these big old knee-high woolly socks on. Now I'm wondering, why these big old pull-up woolly socks? I ain't never seen these big old things before. So, went on to school, and I told mom, I said, I'm going to go up to the school, because something just wasn't right this morning. I went to the office, and I asked for my child to come, and boy, just come strutting down the hallway. And boy, when she saw me, just faded. I got these stockings on because these big old woolly socks then hid the stockings. So we left school, came home, got our whooping, and went back to school without our stockings. I have to tell you which one. Hey. But the thing is this here. Whenever you break God's rule or break a rule, don't think there's not going to be some punishment behind it. Here's Satan. The thing that led to the stockings was pride. The thing that stands in a young man facing his father when he thinks he's a man is pride. And everything that comes up against us to face God becomes our pride. And therefore, Scripture said, pride cometh before what? Before fall. And it says, Satan was proud. And Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven to earth. And he says, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. 
and you corrupted your wisdom. You corrupted your wisdom. So he had wisdom, but he was not using it in the manner that God had ordained it. He corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. Go to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Pick up with me in verse 12. And verse 14 will be the main part. Remember number one that leads to our failure in sin will always be pride. Will be pride. The proudness of being the king and doing anything I want to do led me into the point of sin with Bathsheba. To somebody else's wife. And then the pride of having to answer to Israel and stand before Israel over the sin that I did. I tried to cover it up. Because I don't want to deal with the shame. So I take some man's life. Pride. In verse 12 he starts. How you have fallen from heaven. O morning star son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once led low the nation. You who once laid low the nation. You said in your heart. I will ascend to heaven. I will rise I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. I will make myself. Whenever you start dealing with yourself, rather than in the light of what God says, but just dealing with yourself, and what becomes important in your life is yourself. You're ready for a fall. Because life is not about self. It's about God. And he says, you said to yourself, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. I will be the God of my life. When you begin to lead your life without God leading you, you're heading for trouble. More trouble than what you would ever want. And that's what is so important of constantly asking, God, is this your will for my life? God, is this what you desire me to do? It is important that you're constantly seeking God's counsel. Why? The scripture says he's a wonderful counselor. And he says he will lead you. He will lead you. He will lead you. Now, for that second angel, go to Revelation, because he appears and he's quiet all the way till the end. Revelation 9-11. When you study the earth and his realm and from the scriptural standpoint, God set his angels over different regions of the earth. And angels were meant to be ministering angels to people. 
Satan and his cohorts are constantly fighting that we will not be able to achieve what God would have for us and constantly trying to rob from us. But in that verse, what, 11? He says, they had as kings over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollon. But look at his position. Look at the power he holds. The angel of the abyss. He rules the abyss. The angel of the abyss. Now, turn to 2 Peter, which is about done for the day. Go, go to 2 Peter 2, 4 with me. Next week, we're going to understand a little bit better of why God, and I'm going to give you some of it now. Why is it that God would not be concerned about the angels when they sent And then the angels ask God this question in Hebrews 2. Why are you concerned about man? The angels ask God, why are you concerned about man? Then why is it that God is not concerned about the angels? Think about it for a moment. Look at 2 Peter 2.4. He simply says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, period. When the angels sinned, why wasn't God concerned? What is it that the angels know that you don't know? What is it that the angels have seen that you have not seen? And all his what? The angels saw him when he put the stars in the sky. The angels saw him when he placed the moon and the sun. The angels saw him when he let down the rain. The angels saw when he created man. The angels saw and the angels were with them during all his creation. And where were you and I? And God simply says to the angels in one sense, and this is my imagination. You will sin after you've seen me do all this? You will sin after you've seen me demonstrate my power? You will sin knowing that you at one time did not even exist? And you did not come through procreation? You came through the basically creating of what I wanted to create and you know that 
what the angels have experienced of God, we have no knowledge of, really. And the angels didn't have somebody trying to deceive them, for they knew. And it says when the angels sinned, God just sent them to hell out of his presence. Now what we're going to look at next week and really try to home in on a little bit more is Hebrews 2.16. Hebrews 2.16. For surely it is not it is not angels he helped, but Abraham's descendants. But surely, it is not angels that he helped, but Abraham's descendants. And the question is this, why do we need to help? Why do we need the help? Why is God saying we need the help but the angels didn't? Why is it we need a Savior and the angels didn't? Understand this little thing here. You remove Satan out of the garden and where would we all be at? And we're going to try to look at our sin nature. We need help. We need help. And we don't know how much help we need. And we don't understand the damage that sin does. But no sin is committed without God allowing it. And when God allows you to sin, you need to understand this. There's only two choices God has at, at this point. To give you the opportunity to recognize you've sinned and repent or take your life right then. And don't think God can't take your life right now. Even in the act of the sin, in the midst of the sin, God can take your life. And another principle we're going to look at while we go through this study is this here. At some point in all of our lives, when God gets tired of our sin, he cuts us off. And as Hebrews says, and as Edwards so profoundly spoke on, you and I need to be all so careful of falling into the hands of an angry God. Let's pray. Father, we pray, O oh God, as we go through these next couple of weeks, looking at sin and the effect of sin 
and the damage that sin brings to us and why we sin, that, Lord, that you would enlighten us, that we would really see what sin does. And sin is pleasurable to the flesh for a moment. And then agony comes, pain comes, misery comes, trouble comes. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, a mind to understand, and discernment, O oh God, about this thing called sin. Because your church is being harmed today because of sin. So many of us who have been called out of sin deliberately sin. And we sin willfully hoping that we will not be damaged or we will not be disciplined. We sin in a way that says, oh God, I'm not scared of you. I'm not fearful of you. I have no thought about you in my sin. That Lord, that somehow as we go through this study of sin, that we will gain a new respect or fear or reverence for you. And in doing so, it will be a repellent to us in the area of sin. Lord, glorify yourself in this. But speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, he gives you that opportunity. He says, today is the day of salvation.